Hello and welcome to this episode of Shaw's Communicable Research Podcast. My name is Andy Tatsell and I work at the Sheffield Centre for Health and Related Research, which is part of the School of Medicine and Population Health at the University of Sheffield. And over this series of podcasts, we'll hear from researchers at Shaw alongside some of their collaborators and the work they undertake to tackle some of the world's biggest health challenges. If you want to know more about Shaw, then you can find us on the web at the University of Sheffield. We're also on Twitter at Shaw Sheffield, so please feel free to follow us for updates there. You can also follow us on various podcast platforms that you may wish to subscribe to. So without further ado, let's get on with the latest episode. In this latest episode of this podcast series, we've welcomed back Professor Andrew Lee. Andrew joined Shaw in 2008 and is a Professor of Public Health. He qualified in medicine from the University of Edinburgh and following paediatric and tropical medicine training went on to work overseas running primary health care and tuberculosis control programs in Afghanistan. Andrew often describes himself as a boundary spanner and is dual trained in general practice and public health in the UK. He worked as a public health consultant in Nottingham and as a director of primary care and population health with the NHS and as a consultant in communicable disease control with the Health Protection Agency, Public Health England and the UK Health Security Agency. In addition to his academic role, Andrew is also currently a senior consultant in global health with the UK Health Security Agency and as well as the co-editor-in-chief for Public Health, a journal of the Royal Society for Public Health. In this podcast, we're going to look at the common problem of health misinformation on the web. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. So my background is that of an information specialist, and you are a public health expert. We both know the problem of health misinformation is bad, but how bad would you say it's become since the start of the pandemic? This is a really interesting question because, as, as exactly as you said, misinformation is not new. It's been there for decades, and it's been getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think the pandemic's probably brought in much more to the fore with, with so many misinformation stories and issues going around from vaccines to lockdown and so on and so forth. And a lot of this coincides uh, at a time when we've got the means, the technology, social media to really amplify misinformation. So I, I'd say this problem has been getting worse over time uh, and we've had the right conditions uh, recently to really have seen it mushroom. The term infodemic, which was coined by uh, Gunter Eisenbach, is just after the turn of the century and describes the problem that as a society we are overwhelmed by online information. And so it makes it harder to decide what is fact, what is fiction, and that's probably going to get worse with AI. So what can members of the public do to ensure the information they access is factually correct? This is a really tricky one because I don't think there's an easy answer. Uh, when, when we talk about the public being able to discern what's fact and fiction, it requires a degree of, I guess, critical appraisal, the ability for the public to tell, oh dear, I need to stop and check and think, what's the source of this information? You know, does it make sense? Is there an evidence base for that? But most members of the public do not have the time to do that. Uh, most of us, you know, we're, we're bombarded constantly with information coming to us. We'll not have the time or will not stop to think um, is what's coming in right or wrong. And 
I guess the other issue is, is, is a much more structural issue uh, across society. We often forget that literacy levels in most countries is much lower than the uh, academic classes, the policy level, for example. And that extends to health literacy, people's understanding of biological processes, to scientific literacy, the ability to process, analyze, to criticize, to critically appraise information. So in answer to your question, going forward, I, I think there's a big role here for education to play, and it's got to start right from school. Uh, we've got to help educate uh, our kids to be able to, to question the information that they're receiving, to, I guess, have healthy skepticism. But we have to be careful that we don't swing completely the other way, where we, we de- develop such cynicism where people lose the ability to accept information that's right. Uh, you might have heard the term uh, science denialism. You know, people get to that stage where they, they, they start to deny anything and everything. Um, so it's, it's a difficult balance to take. And if you spare me just another moment, um, Andy, I would also say the other issue is we have to start thinking, how do we start to regulate uh, the modes of transmission of a lot of this information, uh, the social media space? I think governments around the world are, are certainly behind the curve on this. Legislation is always behind the curve at the, at the rate at which technology is, is changing. So how, how do we get ahead of that curve? So lots of things need doing. Um, it's not an easy one to answer. One of the issues with conspiracy and fake news and misinformation is this distrust of authority, government, science. So if more regulation is needed, how do we counteract the mistrust that may come as a result of that? Uh, And this was clearly evidenced during the pandemic, wasn't it? That public health bodies were somehow seen to be an apparatus of the government, of whatever political ideology was going on, and and the public and the media would make links between a political ideology or an organisation with the public health messages. And it made the job of public health practitioners really, really difficult in terms of getting across messages um, to the public in a way that was trusted. There's that mistrust there. It's, It's a tricky one. Um, My view is that for something like public health, in an ideal world, we should have a public health body that is independent of government, that's autonomous of government. So the public uh, would be able to say, okay, the information coming from this body is independent. It's not linked. So people aren't making that link to any political party or any political voice. Um, I think that would certainly help. As we know, the science relating to the latest information about COVID changes often as science does, and new evidence comes comes to light. And one example was around uh, in early stories, or certainly the information that was embedded within uh, society that COVID vaccines prevent transmission, and that was later shown to be untrue, which, again, shows how we learn as we go along, but that can feed the, the conspiracists as well. So it's just part of that quickly evolving evidence base and that the evidence and science can change is the media responsible for portraying evidence as set in stone and if so what can be done to improve that because when the media do portray things they they're working on the information they have at the time if they're doing it properly but that information can change do, do they portray this change well enough i agree with you again you're, you're spot on the, the problem we've got here is a real polarization of public debate and both the media and politics has had a negative influence on this. We've gotten to a stage where you're either right or wrong. 
And science is not like that. You know, science is, is a continual evolving field where knowledge is emerging. Uh, I like to think of it as like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle and every piece of evidence and research study is another piece of the jigsaw that emerges to give you a view of that overall picture. And you can never extrapolate straight away from one piece of the jigsaw or another. And we will pick up nuances, you know, weaknesses in, in that study or findings that don't quite match expectations or scientific theory, whatever. But the point is, we've created an absolutist thinking or mindset in the public that's either right or wrong. And the moment you show any shades of nuance in between, you must be wrong. So how do we educate the public? How do we uh, bring public discourse back to a place where it's not just black or white, but there are shades of uh, grey in between that people can start to appreciate the nuances uh, in there. And I think that would make for a much healthier public debate in many fields, not just health. And as you know, the web is flooded with conspiracy theories, and, and you know, from the Illuminati to tracking microchips in vaccines. I think there was a recent kind of poll which showed that about one in five Americans believed that they were being tracked as a result of the vaccine and that COVID was unleashed to reduce the world's population, which is a, an ongoing conspiracy. So conspiracies make for great films and they very much play to our imaginations, but ultimately many of the major ones are quite damaging. So what more can be done by governments, health agencies, social media and news media corporations to ensure they are limited in their impact and the damage they cause? Indeed. So the first thing I'd say is for some people who have that extremist bent, an extreme position, uh, whatever it might be, um, you're never going to win the argument with them. And the problem is by giving them airtime, it just accentuates that, that warped worldview, shall we say. So the people that governments and public health agencies and the rest of society that we need to be targeting are people on the fence, you know, the swing voters, um, for, for want of a better word, people who have not yet made up their mind or are still looking for information. And those are the people we need to get to to provide the facts. That there's a term pre-bunking, you know, so like before you roll out the COVID vaccine program, can you start to prime people to expect side effects, for example, so people will then not be turned off vaccines uh, when, when they find that vaccination programs do cause side effects, for example. So are there ways that we can prime the public? Are there ways we can inform the public, particularly the, the, the swing voters, um, you know, that middle ground, really? Are there ways we can educate better, um, help them develop that, that, that sense of being able to appraise information, to challenge the source information they're getting? I've also seen suggestions um, from others that can, can we promote greater use of fact-checkers, you know, uh, especially in social media and online, or uh, labelling schemes for people so that they can say, oh, I've seen an article that has, and that's come from a reputable source, it's come from a university, or, uh, for example, rather than from a private party. So there, there are lots of different ideas we can be exploring that may help this issue. A lot of the problem is that conspiracy theories make money. It's a major driver and there's money to be made in the anti-vax movements. There's been money made in things around autism in the US and, and treatments for that. And much of that movement can be tracked back to Andrew Wakefield, who I'm sure you are well aware of, and his retracted MMR paper 
in the Lancet. Do you fear we might see another such academic paper slip through peer review and cause similar damage? Oh, definitely. The, the risk is always there, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if more instances of these uh, come to light in the future. I think sometimes uh, the lay public think that what's published in scientific journals uh, is, is gold, and, and it's, it's cast sign, and it's certain. Um, but not necessarily, because often for journal editors, and I'm a journal editor myself, we have to rely on the editorial processes, the, the reviewers, the scientists who review those papers for us, uh, for their good judgment, um, that those articles coming through are robust. Likewise, we also have to rely that whoever's written that scientific paper hasn't just concocted a story and concocted their figures. It's, it's not easy, and we can never have a system where we're 100% sure that everything comes through is right. But it goes back to what I was saying to you earlier. You know, the, Every paper that comes out, it, it's just one piece of a 10,000-piece of a jigsaw. Do you know what I mean? And, and we always have to be careful in how we interpret uh, evidence. On top of things that may slip through peer review, it's very easy to fabricate things that look like research. So to the layperson, something with some tables and written in a certain way can look quite authoritative. I remember seeing things around COVID and ivermectin and other things being published and being shared on long COVID groups. And people will take these as, as gospel. What can we do to sort of like deal with that? particular problem because predatory publishing is an issue but it's also people publishing things who look authoritative may have got the word letters md by their name and and things like that uh publishing things through different forms because it's easy to publish on the web they look authoritative again what could we do in terms of of that that's another difficult one it comes back to what i was saying about how do we improve the scientific literacy in the general population Uh, that's one thing the second bit is there, there's always that responsibility for academic journals to be able to weed this out. There might be a role for professional bodies. You know, uh, you talk about medical associations, and I think it's in the US, one of the states where they were looking at, do we remove professional licensing from clinicians who, who knowingly uh, do disinformation? Uh, you know, that's harmful. Because there, there, there is a professional responsibility for people uh, where there's public trust. So, so clinicians, for example, that those individuals hold a degree of public trust and they should be careful not to abuse that public trust. The other point I was going to bring up on this, Andy, is sometimes I think academics, we don't help ourselves. Uh, we have very uh, open disagreements. Uh, debate's good, you know, uh, academic debate's good. because That's how we challenge our views, our thoughts, our theories and stuff. But sometimes doing it in the public space um, doesn't help because people then, the, the general public then come away with the, the erroneous idea that, that there isn't evidence or there isn't uh, a consensual view. And one thing I would say that perhaps journalists could do as well is when they're speaking to an academic, is that academic, so you're speaking to me now, uh, am I giving you something that's factual or am I giving you an opinion? And you're two different things. And then what gets published and members of the public read it, and they won't be able to tell, okay, Professor Andrew Lee said this, but was what Andrew said factual, or was it just an opinion? And when, when it becomes opinion, that's where it becomes difficult when you've got social influences, social influences and other people who have huge followings on, uh, out, out there, they're often spouting opinions, and sometimes their opinions get conflated with 
what's factual coming out from uh, academic sources or, or uh, government sources, for example. So the, the, the public has lost the ability to tell the difference between what's fact and what's opinion. So what's needed there really is journalists to cite evidence, certainly academics to give the evidence and to get journalists to cite that in what they cover. Yeah, um, be, be more prepared to challenge, you know. Uh, is what you're telling me fact or opinion? Yeah, I think it's quite important. I think especially so because journalists feel the threat of AI and being able to generate news copy very, very simply. So to do something that's a little bit more deeper that includes some good evidence would would help them perhaps in their course. Yes, gosh, that's uh, the next <laughs> scary uh, age we're coming to, isn't it? The age of AI. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think we will find it increasingly difficult to to tease out uh, what's AI generated, what's factual, and again, what's uh, fictional. So interesting times ahead. And in terms of trust, so trust in scientists is largely high in this country, whereas journalists, it's quite low. And I'm referring to the Ipsos Veracity Index, which showed 83% of people trusted scientists, whereas it dropped to 29% for journalists. So obviously it's not down to academia to help build that trust up for the media, but what lessons can journalists learn from the research community as they work together? My personal reflection from my time in the pandemic dealing with lots of journalists is uh, there's a huge range, um, and there's some for, for whom it's just another headline, and, and there were some journalists who I really got on well with, who were really interested in the story, who, who worked hard to make sure what was uh, put out from academic sources, be it opinions or, or articles from us, uh, was factually correct or, or as close to how we intended it to. And I really appreciated those journalists. And I think I have a lot of sympathy for, the, for journalists. I think members of the public sometimes don't see that. And, and they tar all journalists with the same brush. And it, it's not true. You have some really fantastic investigative journalists out there who do their homework, who do put out what they think is as close to the truth as well, who are driven by very high ideals of public service to be, to be able to give the public information. And, and as I said, you've got the other end who are after the headlines. So, yeah, so I think, I think it's, it's how, this, uh, how this media, the journalists uh, themselves convey that that difference to the public you know I th- and i think may- maybe there might be uh, I, I don't know are there are there blue mark schemes for example for journalists maybe something along those lines you know so because i think that there are different grades of journalists out there absolutely speaking as an ex journalist uh, i can't agree more the web means that anyone can search for health information on any condition and that's got its pros and cons it can help health practitioners who are not always aware of the latest evidence and People often can go see their GP and be more aware of something through their own research than the, the, perhaps the GP would be. But also it can cause problems when patients try to treat the conditions themselves. Is health literacy something that should be the core in the doctor-patient relationship? And I'm thinking, should there be more information provided at clinics as to where to search for information? You know, So a patient might come in and say, I watched a program on Channel 4 last night and I think I've got this condition and someone might come and say, I've done a search on PubMed. You know, there's quite different kind of things going on there. Perhaps there's a, an opportunity here as part of that relationship to improve health literacy? Indeed. So 
we do need a level of basic health literacy in the general public. That's where education has a role, I think. And exactly as you said, people will find stuff, and we have to assume people will look for stuff. It's human nature. We all of us will search Google, won't we? Or pick a search engine of your choice on a on a health topic uh, of concern to us. The the challenge is a finding the right information and b being able to make sense of that information, putting it into context. And that's often where having a doctor sit down with you to make sense of the information is really important. And that's why I don't think doctors will ever be out of a job when it comes to AI and health, because you do need that extra that extra dimension, the ability to put health information into context. There are some really good um, health sources out there. So in the UK, for example, you've got something called Patient UK, full of useful health information, and of course there's the NHS websites as well. So I guess it's how do we help signpost patients uh, or the public to reliable, reputable source of information where we know that there has been some quality control. Yeah, There's been some check of the information that's put out there and that's been written by the experts and checked by the experts. So we've got organisations out there such as Health on the Net, which have been around for a long time, 20-odd years, and NHS Health Information Resources that help try and highlight credible health information but i would imagine the vast majority of the public are just not aware of these resources so again how do how do we make them more aware yeah and i i come back again to education here <laughs> because if we're preparing our young people for the future it's understanding what resources exist out there if you imagine our older generations people in the 80s and 90s who would have contemplated doing your banking online, paying your taxes online and accessing healthcare and even your shopping online? That, that, that's something so far removed from what they were told or taught when they were in, the, in their teens and younger. And for our current generation, how do we prepare our current generation for a future where that becomes the norm or is the norm already? You know? And even dinosaurs like myself, how do we, how do we keep uh, our generation up to date? So there, there is a need for a wider education information piece. Yeah, and maybe is it almost like a, a public citizen's advice bureau, some description that might be of value out there to help people um, navigate what is increasingly a bit of a wild west when it comes to the web, isn't it? And, uh, and there's just so much. I think everyone's just drowning in, in what's out there. So being able to find, uh, find the, the goal that, uh, out of all that that's the challenge. So the next problem, which is potentially a very big problem, is that of artificial intelligence in flooding the web with health misinformation. You know, conspiracy theorists, bad actors are going to use these technologies to their own aims, to, to make money, to disrupt various different agendas. Are there any upsides to AI in this setting, in this health information setting? Because we know that there's going to be negatives, but what can we take from positively? Okay, uh, lovely question. Yeah, there's certainly going to be some benefits. I mean, the, the example that I've got in my mind is when you think of scientists and you think of academics and you think of clinicians, uh, sometimes we speak our professional languages that are completely opaque to the rest of the public. You know, our professional languages are full of jargon and we speak in a... In in a funny way that's sometimes not quite lay English. And AI, I think, has a role here uh, that can be a useful tool in helping us 
uh, craft or re-engineer, uh, let's just say, medical information into simpler lay, lay English or scientific information into a format that um, uh, general members of the public can access. So, yeah, I think that there's an opportunity there, isn't there, to, to harness AI to do that. And not just for stuff in English. Can, can you imagine the ability to use AI to convert stuff, translate stuff into a whole load of different languages so we can access people from different language subgroups in the UK and elsewhere can access information in a language that's easy for them to take on board. So I think there's great potential there, uh, that's, and it's certainly worth exploring it, and it could help us bridge that professional ivory tower divide where, where all the information is locked up and getting it out and mobilised to the general public. So there's a lot to consider, a lot of work to be done, and no doubt we'll pick this up again another time. It's an ever-evolving world, but thank you so much for your expertise, your insights. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much.